It's official. Israel is open to tourists, and tourists are flooding into the country. But how has COVID affected the relaunch of Israel's tourism industry? How long before everything returns to normal? Just ahead, we're going to talk with an industry insider. Plus, a look at current events from the Middle East, questions that you've been asking, and an invitation to travel to the Old Testament town of Shiloh. Where was that? It's a full hour we've got planned for you, so join us now for The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer is our host and guide. He's just back from Israel. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, have you finished uh, editing all those photos from that trip yet? Uh, yes, kind of. It's still an <laughs> ongoing project, but I'm pretty much done. Yeah, well, you stay on top of things, so I'm not surprised. Let's swing our focus to current events. The U.S. is now pulling its remaining troops out of Afghanistan, ending our 20-year military involvement in that country. And while the merits of the move are still being debated, less has been said about the impact that this might have on the Middle East. Charlie, help us uh, gain some perspective there on the larger implications of this move. Okay, John. Uh, The Taliban seem virtually certain to return to power in Afghanistan. So it's good to remember, I think, at the beginning why we invaded in the first place. Uh, The Taliban were criticized for their treatment of women, prohibiting girls from going to school, requiring women to be completely covered. Remember, they're the land of the blue burqas. But that's not why we invaded. We invaded because they refused to hand over Osama bin Laden, who was hiding in Afghanistan and who'd pledged allegiance to Taliban leader Mullah Omar. Bin Laden's gone. ISIS is a shadow of its former self. So our departure doesn't have an immediate impact on us, but it does impact the larger strategic makeup of the Middle East. Uh, This could potentially strengthen Turkey and Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan has always backed the Taliban, and Turkey has been publicly referring to the Afghans as their brothers. However, uh, Turkey could experience difficulties. The Taliban have warned Turkey to remove their troops from Kabul's main airport, which Turkey has been guarding. So it's unclear how that relationship's going to play out. Now, two regional powers are concerned over the U.S. departure from Afghanistan, and they're Russia and Iran. Russia remembers its disastrous nine-year invasion of Afghanistan back in the 1980s and the resulting problem it had with Islamic terrorism, especially in the countries along its southern border. Uh, Their concern is that a newly energized Taliban might again try to export their brand of Islam into Muslim areas of Russia like Chechnya. And Iran's concerned because the Taliban form of Islam, like its twin ISIS, sees the Shiite branch of Islam as heretical. Iran shares a significant border with Afghanistan and Pakistan, and they could feel threatened by a united and resurgent Sunni Islamic fundamentalism just to their east. Uh, That's going to certainly require them to keep looking eastward rather than spending all their energy trying to pursue their Shiite arc of influence to the west. Now, the pullout isn't good news to the women of Afghanistan, and it's not good news for Russia or Iran, but Watch to see how Pakistan and possibly Turkey try to profit diplomatically and militarily from our withdrawal. Afghanistan is going to soon drop out of the sight of media coverage, but Mm. that doesn't mean we need to let it drop off our radar screen. All of this brings to mind that phrase, unintended consequences. Absolutely. Naftali Bennett has been prime minister of Israel for less than two months, but the coalition that he's leading continues to struggle internally. What are the latest problems with the coalition and how could they ultimately bring down the government or could they? Well, the most recent crisis, which took place this last weekend, involved the Islamic Ra'am Party. 
Their four votes are crucial to keep the razor-thin coalition in power, and that's why their announcement last Sunday that they would boycott all Knesset votes and meetings until further notice was a shock. Uh, The immediate problem was a demand to move the authority that handles the development and settlement of the Bedouin in the Negev from the economy ministry to the welfare ministry. Now, that was part of the initial coalition agreement, and a vote was planned for later in the week, but they demanded the vote be moved up, and they threatened to stop cooperating with the coalition if it were not. Well, the crisis was resolved later in the day when the government advanced that vote to relocate the authority, but the mini-crisis did raise a troubling issue. Can the coalition count on the Ra'am party should some other crisis arrive? Uh, Some believe the threatened boycott really came because members of the coalition had approached other Arab parties for their support on the upcoming budget. Failure to pass a budget would automatically cause the government to fall, and that's why the coalition was looking to shore up its position prior to any vote. But the Ra'am party saw this as an attempt to water down their influence on the coalition, so they used the other issue as a way to remind the coalition of their importance. Concerns were also raised when another member of the Ra'am party said the party would bolt from the coalition should Israel launch strikes against Hamas in the Mm -hmm. Gaza Strip. Now that raised the specter of a crisis that could potentially paralyze the coalition in the event of another war with Hamas. Hmm. The crisis this week, John, was not going to bring down the government, but it did serve as another reminder that this broad coalition does remain quite fragile. Our program slash podcast is called The Land and the Book, and if you're joining us midstream, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East expert, is working us through a list of current event stories you've seen online and on television. Well, over the past week, Israeli archaeologists announced the discovery of a 2,000-year-old city hall in Jerusalem near the Western Wall, a section of Jerusalem's wall from the time of the city's fall to Babylon, plus a 3,100-year-old inscription with Gideon's nickname, Didn't know he had a nickname. What is the significance of uh, these latest archaeological discoveries, Charlie? Well, John, they're all fascinating, but I do disagree with some of the interpretations. The archaeologists who identified that building they found as a city hall, well, that's really just a guess. They don't know exactly how it was used, but it is still an amazing find. The announcement about the city wall, which is 2,600 years old, was designed to coincide with Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which happens to be today. This is the day of the Jewish fast to remember, among other things, the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. The part of the city wall that was uncovered does date to the time of the city's fall to Babylon. It was found on the eastern side of the original city of David. Now, the archaeologist said the wall calls into question the biblical account of the Babylonians tearing down Jerusalem's walls, but I think they're wrong on that account. 2 Kings 25.10 does say they broke down the walls around the city, but that doesn't mean they broke down every single part of the wall. Hmm. This section was on a very steep slope, and it's possible the rubble of the buildings that had collapsed from above made it impossible or dangerous to destroy that particular section. It's in the general area where Nehemiah said he had to dismount from his horse because of the jumble of rubble. Anyway, it's a fascinating discovery, but it certainly doesn't disprove the biblical account. And then there's the discovery of that 3,100-year-old inscription. Well, five letters in the Canaanite or Paleo-Hebrew script were found. They were written on a small jug from the time of the period of the judges. And though some of the inscription was missing, the archaeologists do believe it's the name Jerubbaal, which the Bible does say is the biblical name for Gideon. We might say it's his nickname. Hmm. Well, that doesn't mean, though, that the jug they uncovered belonged to Gideon or that this name even refers to him. Uh, Gideon was from northern Israel. 
This was found southwest of Jerusalem in the Judean foothills. But what is significant is the fact that this name, which apart from Gideon's uh, account in the Bible, was otherwise unknown, has now been verified. And it shouldn't surprise us since the last part of the name, Baal, well, that's the name of the Canaanite god Baal. Hmm. Uh, This inscription is a reminder people were able to read and write during the time of the Judges. And it's also a reminder that the names found in the Bible are names that were in use at that time. It doesn't prove Gideon was a real person, but then we don't need such proof because the Bible has already told us he was a real person. Last weekend, a group of rescuers from the Israeli Defense Force left Surfside, Florida to return home. Why did this group travel all the way from Israel to help out in the rescue effort here in the U.S.? You know, this story is a great reminder that, like the U.S., Israel is a very altruistic country. Three days after the collapse of the condo in Surfside, Florida, Israel sent an experienced group of rescuers to assist in the effort to try and locate survivors. The team remained until it was clear there was no hope of finding anyone still alive. Now, as they prepared to leave, the mayors of Miami and Surfside held a ceremony to thank them for their help. Mm. Israel wasn't the only country to send help, but it's this kind of assistance that Israel consistently provides when crises hit around the world that's really part of their DNA. Uh, There are other examples that are constantly sending people around the world, and uh, it's nice that they also did that for us. You know, it should be a great encouragement, I think, John, to all of us. Our country reaches out to help others in time of need, and frankly, I think it's encouraging to know other countries like Israel are there to help us in our time of need. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. So, Charlie, I have a question for you. What's more foolish than a fool, and how does that relate to today's devotional? Well, John, that's where we're going to head. We're going to Proverbs 26, because we know a fool is something that's not good. Proverbs 26 tells us actually what's more foolish than a fool, and I'm going to hold that as a tease until the end of the program. Okay, we'll look forward to that devotional. First, though, this conversation about Israel being open to tourists, how has COVID affected the relaunch, and how long before everything returns to normal, plus questions and answers, your questions about the Bible, prophecy in the Middle East, all coming up on The Land and the Book. Been to our website lately, a lot of great tools and great links there at thelandandthebook.org. It's official. Israel is open to tourists, and tourists are flooding into the country. Now, how has COVID affected the relaunch of Israel's tourism industry? How long before everything returns to normal? Coming up, we'll talk with a couple of industry insiders and get a sense of what's really going on. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. And before we join the tourists in Israel, let's connect with the Jewish friends and neighbors that God has placed on our path right here at home. Listen to this. Finding Yeshua in the Old Testament. Wouldn't you want your Jewish friend to find him there? Boy, that's my heart. And we're talking with Michael Rydelnik, who is the editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Some uh, wisdom from you, Michael. What would you say? Well, it's not enough to point out that the Psalms say that Jesus died for us by crucifixion, Psalm 22, 16, but also that he was raised. It is crucial to see that the prophets foretold and particularly the book of Psalms foretold the Messiah would be raised from the dead. In Psalm 1610, this is not talking about David. It says, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. That's all it really means in the Hebrew Bible. You will not allow your faithful one, one of the most common terms for the Messiah, to 
undergo decay. decay. Not only will he not stay dead in Sheol, but he'll be raised before he actually undergoes any kind of decay, sees any kind of corruption, no bodily decay. And so it's saying just very rapidly, there will be a resurrection that will happen. And so right there, that was one of the key points. Peter mentions it in Acts 2, and uh, Paul mentions it in Acts 13. I think this is one of the crucial Psalms that was pointed out, that the Messiah not only would die for us, but that he would be raised from the dead. Finding Yeshua in the Old Testament, a great tool to share with your friend as well. That's Dr. Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute on the land and the book. Sherry Fitzsimmons is president and founder of Morning Star Tours based in Dallas, Texas. She's joined today by Lee Cooper, who's director of tour development. Since 1995, Morning Star Tours has been offering travelers opportunities to really experience the Bible in an absolutely transformational way, a way that would impact their hearts and engage their minds. And uh, they've got a terrific commitment to excellence and a dedication to providing unsurpassed value. Morning Star Tours offers unique tours that are sure to leave a lifelong impact. Sherry and Lee, we are really looking forward to your bringing us up to date here on The Land and the Book. Welcome to you both. Very excited to be here and to be talking about Israel and going back. Thank you, John. Yeah. Well, now that Israel is opening up to travel, what are we seeing in terms of activity? What's it look like? Well, John, this is the pilot stage of opening. And so Israel is allowing a select few groups operated by trusted companies coming in. They have a set of protocol that is a little bit cumbersome, but uh, folks are so excited to get back over there, they're willing to put up with that. Okay, uh, let's talk about cumbersome. What does that look like? (laughs) Well, each individual, in order to enter the country, has to have a PCR test taken within 72 hours of entry, negative, obviously. Then upon arrival, they have to take another PCR test and a serological test. Now, hold on now. PCR, help me with that. I'm not a medical person, and uh, I know most folks are a little brighter in that area, but what are we referring to here? Well, there are several different kinds of COVID tests, and I'm not a medical person either, but that is a specific kind of test that they require. So when people are getting tested, they need to check with their provider to make sure that it is that type of test. Okay. And this is to verify that they're not coming into the country with COVID. Let me ask you guys, are all the sites that we've uh, talked about in the past, are they open or are some still closed? If something's closed, uh, what is closed? Well, what we're finding is that most of the sites are open. In fact, I would say almost all of them. Some, though, have limited hours. And I want to, like what Lee just said, is things are cumbersome right now because they're trying to figure it out. And that's what's so beautiful of just allowing a certain amount of people in on this pilot because they're going to streamline it. And we're already hearing, you know, from officials that they are going to be dropping some of the things they're requiring right now. Now, what they're going to be dropping, we're not sure yet. We've heard things (laughs) um, and we're hoping. But we do uh, feel pretty confident by the end of the summer that this is going to be much more streamlined, that the limited hours are no longer going to be, but they're going to be onto their regular normal hours. So this is all gearing back up, but they're doing it in a way that it's not going to jeopardize everyone. They're doing it in a slow ramp up. And yes. I really 
you know, admire them for that, and I appreciate it, especially for our groups that are getting ready to go in the fall. Israeli Tourism Update. That's our focus today on the land and the book, and nobody's more qualified to lead that discussion than Sherry Fitzsimmons, president of Morningstar Tours, and Lee Cooper, who serves there as director of tour development. I have to imagine, though, that there are some hiccups. I mean, rehiring hotel staff, guides, bus drivers, that all takes time, and they can't all be, you know, available uh, to launch totally smoothly. What's been the experience there? Well, it's wonderful because we do have Charlie Dyer on the ground over there, and we all have Mark Yarborough, who's uh, president of DTS, on the ground. So they're getting to experience this firsthand, and you're absolutely correct. Some of the hotels let go of their entire staff and are having to rehire and retrain, or else those people have been only dealing with Israelis. And it's very different dealing with an Israeli guest versus a guest from America or a tourism guest. Fortunately, there are a lot of hotels that we use that did keep on their old staff, uh, Lisa Skeleton crew, and so we have people coming back that do have that experience. And so those are going to be the hotels and the places that we're going to be frequenting until we know better that a lot of these places are up and running the way they need to. But I think everybody realizes this has been a very unusual yes. time, and we're going to have to have patience with each other on every end. And I feel very confident, though, that Israel is going to have this up and going because they know how to do it better than anybody. And you know that, John. You've seen that firsthand. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Well, Lee, what about lines in these places? I mean, are they still spreading people out six feet apart? Or, you know, is it, you know, once you come in and prove you don't have COVID with that test you referenced, uh, you're okay? How are the lines in general? Well, that is the beauty of being over there right now. As I said, it's a select few groups. And so over there experiencing Israel like they never have before because there are no lines. (laughs) They're walking right in. Now, as more and more tourists come in, as they expand and, and let more people in, I imagine for a while they will be spacing people out a bit. A lot of places are going to require appointments which uh, we're we're on the ball getting those lined up. One nice thing is that masks are not being required. People are, you're not seeing that, except maybe some of the staff people are doing it just so that people feel safe, but it is not a requirement. And so they're kind of lax on what we're seeing more of here, but it's not happening there. And that's very encouraging to us as well. Maybe as you listen, you've been wondering, what is the state of tourism right now in Israel? That's what we're finding out. Uh, what are you guys hearing regarding a more complete return to normalcy? You, you've, you've used the term streamline, and I'm not trying to push you against the wall, but what are the inklings, the rumblings that you're hearing, Sherry? Any kind of a time frame? Yes, I'm really seeing that the end of August, really into the fall, our first large groups begin uh, the end of September, and we have a lot that are returning in September, October, November. And I think that's going to be the same with a lot of other tour organizers. So we're seeing that this fall, we're going to be back to a more normal then. Mm -hmm. Will it be completely normal like it was before? I don't know if anything will ever go like it was before. We would love it to. And if it does, we're going to praise (laughs) God for that. But um, we do see that they need the tourism. One of the comments that we're getting from those over there is they didn't realize what an encouragement their presence was going to be to the Israeli people. 
and they're ready to become back to normal and being able to receive guests. They are a country filled with hospitality and wanting to welcome, and they're going to try to do everything they can to make sure that that is done in a way that people will feel that hospitality completely. Hmm. Well, let me ask you, what is uh, the biggest challenge in this transition season for a tour operator like Morningstar? I mean, you guys have been grappling with this. It's been more than a year. And what are the kinds of things that do you have to deal with that maybe average folks like me never even thought of? Wow. I think one of the biggest disappointments was watching our guests who were so excited about going over there be canceled Mm -hmm. and then rescheduled and then canceled again. It was really disappointing for them and us. We have watched our Israeli guides and vendors really suffer through a time of drought for them. The beauty, though, in this is what we've seen God do with our team as we struggled along. When we released this to him and trusted him about what to do, he really grew us in a way we never thought possible. It has been a drought, you know, for everyone, and everyone has suffered in different ways, yes. including Morningstar. But we really opened our hand and said, is Morningstar done, Lord, or is this something that you want to continue? And he very obviously showed us that he's not done with Morningstar, and he provided for us in ways we never thought possible. We have the most extraordinary team that I've ever had uh, in the 26 years we've been in business. And he has allowed us to keep everyone. We didn't have to let go of anyone. And so this team is up and ready to go. It is challenging because people want to go, and we just keep scheduling things and getting things in place. But it's real hard sometimes to get the answers that we need to move Mm -hmm. forward. And I would say that's been one of the biggest difficulties in the transition. Yeah. Well, for those who are maybe still just a bit concerned about coronavirus in Israel, what is your response? Well, Israel is well ahead of the U.S. in how it has dealt with COVID. 99% of the country is functioning normally again. Most of them have, I would say it's almost 90% had the vaccines. And they are much safer over there than we are over here. They have got this under control in a way that I'm hoping that we will soon. And so I feel if they're concerned about that, that they can just look to God and and know that Mm. he is working in this nation that he has always worked in and wants his people to be there. And he's working to make that possible and for people to have the confidence to go. And it's amazing to me that Israel's on the forefront of dealing with this pandemic in a way other countries are still trying to figure out. Others might be wondering, and you mentioned the issue of safety, what about you know physical safety from oh, the rocket attacks? Have they really ended? That kind of thing. Uh, your response. Oh, John, you know that this has been something we've been dealing with for 26 years. <laughs> there is always something going on over there. It comes, it goes, it quiets down. And uh, right now, things are a lot quieter. There are a few things that are happening, but it is not happening in the areas that our people are going into. Uh, We've had great reports from Charlie that they have not experienced anything while they're in the land. You know, there's a lot of people there right now. And to them, they're not aware of anything happening. We hear some things in the news. And our news likes to, you know, talk about the negative. 
and that's just part of the news cycle. And we feel really confident that this is something that there needs not be that worry. If something begins to happen, we always are on top of it, and we are never going to put somebody in harm's way. And as you know, in the past, we have had to cancel because of that, and we won't hesitate to do that. You know, we have to. And so keeping our people safe is the utmost importance to us. What kind of tools uh, does Morningstar offer churches that are thinking about hosting an Israel tour? We are a full-service and customization company. So if a pastor is new to leading tours and hesitant about being able to do that, we will assist him all along the way from creating his itinerary, identifying teaching moments for him, providing promotional plan to help advertise the tour, to full service with guests, registration process, answering all of their questions. If a pastor is experienced in leading tours, we are there to take over all of the headache of administrative work and take that on so that all he has to do is shepherd his people. So we are here to take the burden off. And that's a neat thought as we wrap up our time today with Lee Cooper, Director of Tour Development. You just heard her there, as well as Sherry Fitzsimmons, founder and president of Morningstar Tours. You guys are great. Thank you for giving us inside views of the state of tourism right now in Israel. Appreciate your expertise. Well, John, we're excited that some of your audience will be willing to walk in faith and go to Israel and be impacted by walking where the Word of God is happening. Amen Thank to that. you, John. Thank you guys both. Hope you have a great day. And I hope our listeners stay with us as Charlie Dyer returns to look at the latest Bible questions that have come into our email inbox. Stick around for more on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. John Gager confessing, I am intrigued with cats. If you ever watch a cat, they, uh, of course, sleep about 90% of the time. they got nothing but time on their hands. And yet, and yet, if there's the slightest itch, they go after that itch with a just a, a voracious scratch. I mean, they really go after that thing. I say, why not take your time? Why not enjoy that, you know? <laughs> That's cats for you. You know, you and I have a sense in which some of these things in the Bible that confuse us are like an itch. But sometimes we never get the pleasure of scratching that itch with an answer. Well, it's a roundabout way of saying you're about to enjoy this next segment on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager with Charlie Dyer. Charlie, uh, what do you think about that cat thing and that scratching? They, they do kind of go after those itches, don't they? They do. And as you're talking, I'm here thinking, boy, my back has an itch in it now. So... Uh, <laughs> But when it comes to Bible questions, yeah, that, we want to we want to scratch that itch. Yeah, we'll scratch where you're itching right now. Starting with Deb's question, she says, "I was just reading Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter seven, and he said that the bodies of Jacob and others were buried in a tomb at Shechem. I'm wondering why he didn't say Hebron. Thanks for your insightful program. I tell others that it's my favorite, Charlie." Yeah, well, you know, that's actually a very interesting question, Deb, because it does sound like Stephen saying Jacob and Joseph were both buried in Shechem, and that would conflict with Genesis 49, where it says Jacob was buried in the cave of Machpelah near Hebron. Uh, the two spots, by the way, are about 50 miles apart, so it's not like they're very close. And now, the answer to the potential problem is to look carefully at what Stephen actually says, though, in verse 16. Uh, he says, they were removed to Shechem, or their bodies were brought back to Shechem, depending on the translation. But in the context, he's referring back to 
our fathers in verse 15. Uh, When Jacob died, he was taken and buried in the cave of Machpelah shortly after his death. But the bodies of Joseph and presumably Joseph's other brothers remained in Egypt following their deaths. When Israel left Egypt, they carried with them the bones of Joseph. And I think it's reasonable to assume they also took along with them the bones of the other sons of Jacob, the, the patriarchal fathers. We know Joseph was buried in Shechem, so Stephen could simply be saying the fathers, referring to Joseph's brothers, who were the fathers of the different tribes, were buried with Joseph at Shechem. Stephen then adds one additional detail that's not recorded in Genesis, and that is that the land where these fathers were buried had originally been purchased by Abraham, and indeed Abraham did first arrive in the land near Shechem. Our next question takes us to Romans 8 verse 2, short and sweet. What is the law of the spirit of life? Yeah, I wish the answer was as short and sweet as the question. Uh, The key is to look at the items Paul is comparing and contrasting at the end of chapter 7 and then at the beginning of chapter 8. You know, Paul talks about the law of God versus the law of sin in chapter 7. The word law, by the way, is the Greek word namos. It can have the idea of law or principle. It has the idea of something that was established or accepted. So God's established principles of right and wrong were in the Mosaic law. And that's what Paul means by the law of God. But the law of sin is likely a reference to the sin nature, which seems to rule over us. In fact, Paul describes it in verse 17 there as the sin which dwells in me. And that's why he finally cries out, who can set me free from the body of this death? Paul ends chapter 7 by saying, while his mind wants to follow the law of God, his flesh, his sinful nature, keeps wanting to follow the principles of sin. And that brings us then to chapter 8. The key to breaking free from sin and condemnation is to belong to Jesus. In 8.1, Paul refers to those individuals who are in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, he describes the relationship by calling it the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The spirit there refers, I think, to the Holy Spirit, not to our human spirit. And the spirit of life is that eternal life which the Holy Spirit gives. Now that matches what Jesus said back in John chapter 3, verse 8, when he he said we're born by the Spirit or born of the Spirit. The established truth is that the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, combined with the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, has set us free from the controlling principle of the sin nature. Now, that's a long answer to a short question, but in the larger context, Paul is making a contrast between trying to win God's approval through our own human efforts versus gaining God's approval through the work done on our behalf by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's the land of the book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, is helping us understand some tricky Bible passages, and your question is always welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. Steve says, love your show, The Land and the Book. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate those kind words. He takes us to Genesis 49, verse 13, where Jacob blessed Zebulun, saying, his tribe would live by the seashore and become a haven for ships with its northern boundary point at Sidon. Yet in Joshua 19, the Lord gave the fifth lot to Asher, which seems like the exact spot Jacob had said would go to Zebulun by the Mediterranean Sea with Sidon to the north. The third lot went to Zebulun, which turned out to be a landlocked area tucked in between Asher, Naphtali, Issachar, and Manasseh. It appears God overruled Jacob's blessing. Any observations on this, uh, Charlie? I know God can do whatever he wants. Yeah, in this case, I don't see a contradiction, though, or an overruling. I think in Genesis 49, Jacob didn't actually say Zebulun would dwell by the seashore. A word-for-word translation of the passage would say something like, Zebulun, to the coast of the seas, he will dwell. 
to the coast, which is the same word as the first part of the verse, of ships, even his flank towards Sidon. Now, it sounds bizarre, uh, but I think what he's saying is the word to there in that translation could be also understood as toward or by. Uh, Though Zebulun's tribal allotment wasn't on the coast, it did extend toward two seas, the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. The Mediterranean was less than 10 miles from their western boundary. The Sea of Galilee was about three miles from their eastern edge. And the fact that the word for sea is plural in that passage suggests to me that both seas are intended. Joshua 19 does make it clear that Zebulun's boundary didn't extend to the coast. Asher received the land along the Mediterranean coast, including the region around Sidon. So how do I pull it all together? Well, I don't take Jacob's initial blessing to mean Zebulun would inherit the land along the Mediterranean. Instead, I see him promising that Zebulun would live near the seas, that is between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, with influence extending outward as far as Sidon. The land eventually received by Zebulun did enable them to dwell between the two seas. And Isaiah 9 is a good illustration of how Zebulun was connected with the Sea of Galilee, even though their specific inheritance didn't extend to the shore of the lake. Uh, They dwelt toward the coast of both the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, even though their physical boundaries didn't actually extend to the shore of either one. Jim says, on a previous broadcast of The Land and the Book, you said the gospel always involves salvation by grace in what God promised. You went on to quote Genesis 15, verse 16, and Galatians 1, verse 3. Your point was that salvation was always by the grace of God and Christ's death on the cross. My question is, what did Martin Luther bring to the salvation table? It seems that there was not a sola fide grace alone much prior to the Reformation. I appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, I believe Martin Luther's main contribution was to restore a central biblical truth of salvation by grace through faith that had been obscured by religious dogma. It's not that he was the first ever to uncover that truth. Obviously, the Apostle Paul talked about it in books like Galatians and Romans. In fact, Martin Luther was studying the book of Romans when he came to understand this truth. In Galatians 3.6, Paul quotes from Genesis 15.6, showing that God credited righteousness to Abraham because of his faith. So that truth extends back to Abraham and was recorded by Moses. Now, as the writer of Hebrews makes clear in chapter 11, faith was the common thread that wove its way through the great men and women of the Old Testament, including Abel, Enoch, and Noah, even before Abraham. Now, I believe through all generations, God has had a remnant who've been saved by placing their trust in what he has promised. It was that faith that brought about their salvation. Now, in the progress of Revelation, God gave greater insight into what his plan of redemption involved and and how it would be accomplished. Abraham didn't understand as much as Paul, but each recognized that God expected them simply to trust what he had promised. But now back to Martin Luther. His contribution was to reaffirm what the Bible had already clearly taught. And I don't say that to minimize at all what he did. The church in his day discouraged the reading of the Bible and had substituted its teaching in place of what God's Word clearly taught. Martin Luther laid his life on the line by taking a public stand against the religious authorities of his day. And that kind of courage is a rarity in any age. Well, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by grace that we're saved through faith, so that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so nobody can boast or brag. Somebody may be listening right now, Charlie, who's finally understanding this. What's their next step? Uh, The next step is to place their trust in Jesus. It's simple. You can do something like, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I now understand that your son died to pay the penalty for my sin, 
and I want to place my trust for eternal life in him. Uh, Would you please forgive me of my sins and help me to enter into that relationship with you based on what your son has done for me? It's as simple as praying something like that to enter into God's family. And maybe you'd like some help with this. Well, a friend, a volunteer would be glad to pray with you right now if you'll place a call to 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. Great segment today, Charlie, as always. And if you've got a question, it's always welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. Hi, John Geiger here with more on the land and the book. I'm guessing you just might have had the experience that I've had many times. You're supposed to be paying attention to a discussion. Important things are being said, but your mind is drifting. And all of a sudden, somebody asks you your opinion or wants you to comment on something, and your mind is gone. You feel like a fool. Ever been there? (laughs) Well, I certainly have. We're going to talk about what it means to be more foolish than a fool coming up in today's devotional. First, though, let's listen to this Holy Land experience, a testimony from somebody who has traveled to Israel and shares this with you and me. Uh, yeah, hi, this is Jim. Uh, I've been listening to your program. It's great. Uh, I went to Israel a couple years ago, and it was a life-changing experience. I loved it. Love to go back. I haven't had the chance now that i got young children at home, as you can hear. But anyway, uh, uh, everyone that calls in about their experience always says that the Bible came alive. And certainly when you go to Israel, you, you really have a new perspective on reading the Word of God. The thing that was amazing to me was, when they talk about how Jesus was in one place and then he was in some other place miles away and the fact that they didn't have transportation and had to walk all around uh, gives you a new perspective when you when you read that and you go from city to city. So uh, I know you guys know this, but the Word of God is living and active and uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. Read the Word. Thanks. Hi, my name's Kimberly. I'm from Chicago. And I was just listening to program on Israel. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to go to the Holy Land, but I just got back from Turkey. And what I saw there was truly inspiring, particularly the cave churches and cities that Christians would hide in, um, first from the Romans and then from the Muslims, and just facing so much persecution and persisting in their faith is truly inspiring. And you go into these you don't need to hear the way God affects everybody differently as they travel to the Holy Land, so we appreciate that Holy Land experience. And Charlie, we appreciate the thought that you've given to this whole subject of becoming a fool just a bit uncomfortable, because uh, sometimes I think I can act too easily like a fool. But that's where you're headed in your devotional, right? <laughs> uh, years ago, Bing Crosby sang a song called, Would You Like to Swing on a Star? Yeah. Uh, the song focused on the importance of education. I, I still remember some of the lyrics. A mule is an animal with long, funny ears. He kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school... You may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to sing on a star? Uh, we'll, we'll stop there. Uh, it's a great song. But is it true? Uh, does school keep someone from growing up to be stubborn and stupid? 
And the answer is not necessarily. There's a vast difference between knowledge and wisdom. Education can help a person become more knowledgeable, but it won't necessarily make the person any wiser. The Bible distinguishes between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge refers to the facts you know. Wisdom to the skills necessary to live successfully. To be wise is to understand that God is in charge of the world and that we need to align our lives to God's standards. In the Bible, a fool isn't someone without knowledge. It's someone who refuses to submit to God, who believes he or she is somehow smarter than God. The book of Proverbs is God's textbook on wisdom. It explains how life works and how we need to respond. Our destination today is Proverbs 26. The first 11 verses are a series of comparative statements about the fool. Solomon begins by explaining the danger of honoring a fool. Like snow in summer and like rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Israel can get snow during the wet winter months, but snow in the summer is just out of place. The land is too hot and too dry. Snow in summer is inappropriate. And rain during harvest was even worse. The winter rains have ended by harvest season. Farmers didn't want rain during harvest because it would damage their crops. Rain at harvest wasn't just inappropriate, it was dangerous. And so is honoring those who oppose God. Now, in verse 8, the writer also spoke about honoring a fool. Uh, There he said such honor was not only inappropriate and dangerous, it was also ineffective. Like one who binds a stone in a sling, so is he who gives honor to a fool. Imagine what would have happened to David had he tied the stone to the inside of his sling before he faced Goliath. As Goliath charged, he would have twirled the sling, taken aim, and let go of the one end and then watched as the stone stayed inside the sling. The story would have had a different ending. Honoring a fool doesn't help him and it just might end up hurting you. That's the point of that proverb. Uh, Solomon had several other colorful descriptions of the fool. He said, we don't need to get upset by a foolish person's threats, which he compared to a bird swooping this way and that while never actually landing. A fool shoots off his mouth so often that his words are no longer taken seriously. Uh, Fools never seem to get it, he says, until they experience the consequences of their actions. Just as someone might use a whip or a bridle to get a donkey or a horse to move in the right direction, so it seemed as if uh, personal consequences like a rod on the back was the only way to get a fool to pay attention. Two of my favorite Proverbs appear next in that passage. They show why we need to view wisdom literature like Proverbs as principles, showing how life generally works than as ironclad promises. Verses 4 and 5 actually seem to be saying just the opposite of each other. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes the best response to a fool is to ignore him rather than lashing back. But other times an answer is needed lest the fool think his argument has validity. Which response is most appropriate? It depends on the circumstances. And that's why both proverbs are necessary. Uh, Thus far, Solomon has painted a very bleak picture of the fool. Honoring a fool is inappropriate, dangerous, and ineffective. A fool needs to be ignored or challenged based on the specific circumstances. A fool doesn't add value to a conversation and can actually complicate things if his advice is followed. Fools are undependable and seemingly incapable of learning from past mistakes. And you go, wow. You know, at this point, we feel like a fool is the bottom of the barrel, the ultimate example of stupidity. The person Bing Crosby was singing about. And in many ways, that's an accurate assessment. 
But that's why I find verse 12 so amazing. Having shown how destructive a fool really is, Solomon then describes someone who's even more foolish than a fool. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. A conceited, self-centered individual is more foolish than a fool. As hopeless as a stubborn fool might seem, there's more hope for a fool than for someone who thinks he's smarter than he really is. But what does Proverbs 26 have to do with us today? We live in a time when many believe the words of the Bible are passé, antiquated, out of date. They say that those who believe the Bible are troglodytes, members of the Flat Earth Society, impediments to true progress. Don't believe it. Even if everyone else seems to be heading in the same direction, if that direction runs contrary to what God has said in his word, then don't join the parade. Jesus said it best, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Stick with the standards laid out by God in his word. The path might appear to be narrow and the number of travelers few, but the destination to which it leads makes the journey worthwhile and those who walk that way wise. You know, as I listen to Charlie talk about destinations, the thought pops into my head, what about eternal destinations, your eternal destination? Are you sure, for example, that you're headed for heaven? Do you know that Jesus would receive you with open arms? You know, if you've got questions, why not get some answers? Why not know for sure that your eternal destiny is heaven? You know, when you have Jesus as your Savior, your, your life here is all different. This is not merely about buying some sort of eternal life insurance. No, this is about knowing Jesus and about having him in charge of you. It's about living your, you know, people talk about living your best life now. Let me tell you, there is no living your best life now apart from Jesus. And when he's in charge, it's all different. If you'd like to make Jesus your Savior, why don't you pray with me right now? Lord, I, I believe what I'm hearing. I don't understand all of it but I believe you died for me on the cross to pay for my wrongdoing, my sins. And now I'm inviting you to be in charge of me from this day forward. Thank you, Jesus. You know, if you'd like to keep this conversation going online, you can head to chataboutjesus.org, chataboutjesus.org. We'd love to remind you that we've got a podcast available. It's right there at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Listen again or share us with your friends, The Land and the Book Podcast at thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Gager. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.